2: Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, February 24th, 2023. I'm Jason Breifel from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. This week, I'm sitting down with two longtime good government advocates and close friends, Jenny Mattingly of the Partnership for Public Service and Rob Seidner of edX. On this program, we'll be discussing Jenny and Rob's work to professionalize uh, the federal workforce uh, and specifically some focus uh, on the HR and the leadership Elements of our workforce. Um, they're both in relatively new roles. And so we're really happy to have them here on Fed Talk. And for our longtime listeners, you may recognize Jenny as a former host here of, of Fed Talk. Um, She is the Partnership for Public Services' new Vice President of Government Affairs. Uh, She previously served in the Executive Branch at OMB, focusing on hiring reform efforts and workforce priority of the President's management agenda, spent several years consulting with good government organizations, served as the Executive Director of the Performance Improvement Council and the Founding Director of the White House Leadership Development Program. Uh, As I mentioned, I met Jenny more than a decade ago when she hired me at Shaw Brandsford & Roth, and we've uh, worked together on the Senior Executives Association and uh, other groups. Glad to have you here on FedTalk, Jenny.
3: It is great to be here and fun to be back uh, doing this work, so excited for the conversation.
2: And uh, our second guest today is Rob Seidner. He is the Director of Government Partnerships at EDX, an online learning platform offering courses on executive education, as well as online micro-degree programs and professional certifications. Rob previously worked at OMB doing federal human capital policy and was a legislative fellow on the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, subcommittee on government operations and border management. Uh, Rob also worked in various federal agencies, including... Uh, OMB, OPM, and the Department of Transportation. So glad to have you here today, Rob. I'm
0: excited to actually be here for the first time. I'm actually one of those longtime listeners and happy to actually have a chance to be on the show.
2: Awesome. We're so glad to have you here on this side of the fence and and, you know, you're both in these relatively new roles, Rob, you for about a year, I think, or so, Jenny for just a month. And so can you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on um, here today? And, and maybe Rob, will start with you as, as, as the first time Fed Talk guest, and then we'll go over to Jenny.
0: So leaving government was certainly uh, not something I planned on doing. But when I had the opportunity to go to edX, where the mission is democratizing access to the top education in the world, to really focus on closing the skills gaps, the access to education, and work on a mission in a type of role I hadn't done before, which is launching the government practice, building it, and being able to just have this new type of experience, it was hard to say no to another mission-driven organization.
2: Love it. Um, and I know you're you're having a lot of fun over there. Jenny, how, how have things been at the partnership for your first Yeah, month?
3: it's great to be here and be part of this team and working on the same issues, right, both inside and outside government about making the workforce stronger and supporting the federal employees who are doing good work day in and day out and focusing on government operations and modernization. So it's nice to be here on this side supporting that work. And obviously a lot of listeners will recognize Partnership for Public Service from the SAMIs, from Best Places to Work, from some of the leadership development. And so the part I get to deal with is looking at some of the policy work. Um, We have reports and other recommendations that come out to help strengthen government. And so I get to work with a stellar team on figuring out how do we look at the policies that enable the work um, of federal employees day in and day out?
2: Awesome. And I, I want to, you know, given that you both have, have had experience in and out of government, Rob, for you, I'd say a bunch more time in government than Jenny, kind of I'm curious what things you're observing or seeing now that you're on the outside or this other side of the fence. And, and, and maybe Jenny, I know you were recently there doing some of this important hiring reform work. Uh, which is really critical to revitalizing uh, an actual merit system and and competitive hiring in the government. Uh, you know, kind of what are you walking away from that experience with, with anything in particular?
3: You know, a couple of things. And I've been in government a couple of times and fortunate to do that. And part of what I realize sometimes is that we don't always um, from the outside hear the stories of the good work that's going on in government right so that's always my first piece is around the stories that are there and the real people who are doing this work and sometimes that we hear about things when they go wrong we don't always hear about the things when they go right and so every time i've been inside it's always surprising in a good way how many things are going right while there are still being able to see where some of those implementation challenges are right because there are challenges around hiring there's challenges around ensuring people are getting access to leadership development and thinking about the skills we need. And, you know, private sector companies are dealing with some of the same challenges around telework and future of work, things like that. And so it's also helpful to understand when you've been on inside government, kind of where those opportunities and barriers are to moving forward in that space. And so it's helpful to have both perspectives inside and outside.
2: Thanks so much, Jenny. And I definitely want to we're going to pull the thread throughout our discussion here on fed talk today about like, what are some of those opportunities? What are some of those systemic barriers that we've all uh, banged our head against for, for many years, some of us, and, and, and what, what can we do collectively uh, differently about it? Um, And Rob, I want to come back to you first on, on the same question, kind of what are you seeing differently now, now that you're on the outside? So,
0: Having been in government, I was in for 18 plus years without leaving, and especially the last you know, eight being purely in the center of government at OMB. One of the things I'm realizing being on the outside is how little, even highly intelligent, hardworking people understand how government works. We do um, a fairly poor job of explaining the processes, we do a bad job of explaining what we do. So kind of tagging along with Jenny, commenting on how our good stories don't get out. It's been kind of remarkable for me, working with all of these organizations that are working in the education field, working with universities, working really on the future of work, and then trying to explain to them how to work with the federal government. It really is, baffling to them that um, not just the people who I work with who are American, but I report to one person who is from South Africa, another person from the United Kingdom, and trying to explain to them how to get from A to C, let alone A to Z, is almost comical for me in stepping back to think about how do we explain things. So it really has made me think about what we do in government and how we need to be far better at simplifying our processes as well as being able to explain to make sure that especially a lot of the small businesses people who come from backgrounds where they have no connection to the federal government will better be able to understand how to work with us um it's a pretty major barrier to entry that is not really acceptable. So it's been fascinating for me to be on the other side and somewhat see how things I worked with are coming back to somewhat bite me now.
2: I I really appreciate both your perspective there. And it is, um, you know, we've, we've, we're in this big democratic experiment, and we've, we've added a lot and the government has grown and grown and grown over time. But it, you see the frustration in the public and some of the the scary numbers frankly about trust in government and and i think that lack of access to that storytelling about the good stuff that's happening making it hard to even understand how is your government working for you and how do you interact with it in in a coherent and logical way and i think that the pandemic and kind of the the forcing of of technological modernization across the board has has changed the game you know we, we the public will not tolerate some of the things that they might have in the past. And again, I'm excited to talk about the opportunity uh, that we have before us to uh, continue pressing on some positive changes, getting those great stories out there, uh, and seeing what we can uh, do together in the federal community. Uh, but first, we've got to pause to take our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm here with Jenny Mattingly from the Partnership for Public Service and Rob Seidner from edX. Uh, let's dive back into the conversation and right before the break we were talking about uh, the opportunities to modernize uh, government government systems and the way that we're delivering uh, public services and you know we're also recognizing that we're in a period of divided government and so I wanted to ask you both, are we going to lose momentum? How do we keep that momentum? What what do you see can be done uh, in this time of divided government? And maybe Jenny will we'll start
1: with you.
3: Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because it's not, it's not a new thing to have a divided government. This, you know, many years in the work that we've been doing here, um, it's gone back and forth between different parties being in the majority, having divided government. And one of the things that know i've always said from a long time is a lot of these good government and good management issues are bipartisan you really can find areas of agreement on both sides because the government touches so many parts of this country obviously every part of the country right and so people hear in congress from their constituents about different services and i think rob's point about being clear and transparent about those services and how they work and how they impact people really resonates when you can get those stories um to Congress. And so I think, uh, in my mind, it's looking at what are those areas of opportunity that we talked about. Obviously, one of the bills that's gone through Congress already was Chance to Compete Act, which was bipartisan, it's gone through the House, it's being considered in the Senate. And so right there, just with hiring, I think there's recognition that things need to change, there's opportunities to make hiring better to work for applicants to work for HR, um, HR and for hiring managers. And so How do we find those issues about making, you know, maybe really tactical issues about making government work better for people and lean into finding solutions for those?
0: I completely agree that I think it's kind of a myth that divided government is going to hurt civil service reforms and improvements and working with government because while there may be disagreements about the size of government, there may be disagreements about some of the roles and missions Mm -hmm. of government. You're not going to find too many members of Congress saying they want government to be inefficient, for government to fail, for there to be breakdowns. And I think the areas of agreement far outweigh the areas of disagreement when it comes to the infrastructure of government. So, you know, building on Jenny's talking about Chance to Compete Act, that passed in the first weeks of the House reconvening 422 to 2. So when you're talking about a standalone bill that is focused on how do you improve skills-based hiring, how do you get agencies to work closer together on hiring and assessments to lower the barrier to applicants, to reduce the time to hire, reduce the cost of government, to get a better quality future workforce, there was Literally, agreements amongst people who seem to agree on nothing else. And there are several other issues like that, that there are places for people to come together because no matter what, every member of Congress, first of all, represents federal employees, and every member has citizens that work with government and rely on government for one need. So there's the incentive to make sure government is working efficiently. So I actually feel government operations are one place, this particular Congress that is so closely divided could really come together to make some pretty substantial changes because there is so much agreement.
3: And I'll just jump in there and say, right, like when we talk about IT modernization, um, customer service, digital experience, and Rob mentioned all the people that work with government in one way or the other, they want a seamless experience of going online, they wanna be able to get the services they need when they need them. And so I think those are areas, if you wanna call a future of work, that there are going to be interest in. And some of that's underpinned by making sure we have the talent in government who can deliver those services and the talent who can help modernize any of those IT systems. And so in my mind, I think it's not only this customer experience, IT modernization that's going to be important, I think there is going to, and my hope is that there's going to be bipartisan support for looking at talent development, leadership, some of the same things we're thinking about future of work in this country as a whole. What are the skills we need in the next 5, 10, 15 years in agencies and businesses?
2: Yeah, and I'll I'll pick up on a thread that you both have laid out there. There was a, the National Skills Coalition put out this really powerful report recently earlier this month that found that like, 93% of all of the jobs that, that are being posted out there in the country require a different kind of digital foundational skill set. And, and to me, for these government IT modernization projects to work, for for this customer service improvements to work, we've got to think about the skill set side of the current federal workforce and and the workforce that's coming in. And do we know how to assess those skills? Do we know how to document them? Do to hiring managers and HR officials understand what those skills might be so that they can advise their agencies on, well, we can build this talent or we might need to go buy it in the market because they're a little farther down the chute than us. And so I think it it feels like we're at a a kind of an inflection point where where the government's realizing some things that it has put out for others to do, maybe it could do on its own with some training. Um, And to me, that seems like a, a, a big opportunity area for us.
0: I'm someone who, is fairly old school when it comes to what I believe the civil service should do. I'm a big proponent of a competitive civil service that people are hired based on their ability to do the job. But I'm also someone who feels that we need to be continuing to continually train our civil servants to do the work. That a blended workforce certainly has its role But at the same time, I would much rather have civil servants performing the work instead of a lot of it being outsourced. And part of the reason we've had to go outside government so often is how little we invest in civil service across the board and making sure our civil servants can continually use new technology. That when you think about the recent developments with like the chat AI and along those, how many government agencies have started training civil servants on using these tools that are going to completely overhaul how most of operations are done? Same deal went blockchain, same deal with when apps came out on iPhones, email. It generally is taking us 10, 15 years to start training people on places that if we started now, at a far lower cost, we would be able to have our government employees perform those duties.
3: And I think that's an interesting, you know, Jason, you and I have talked about this for a long time, and it's something we've talked about um, with my team at the partnership, is how do we bring both legislative attention and agency attention to supervisor training, to really intentional strategic leadership development, and putting those in as, a sort of a normal course of business versus one off letting agencies who are interested in it do it. And so, and how do we engage Congress in those conversations about what are the changes to policy needed to support moving agencies in that direction? And so that's one of the things going back to what can we see in this Congress? I certainly think there's a door to get get that conversation going of how do we really support and develop leaders at every level. It's got to start when you're walking in the door of an agency, building all the way up your career so that you do ask those questions about technology so that you are able to think about, you know, future of work and what's needed to serve the American public.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, we have a model for this. There are certain parts of the federal workforce where Congress has decided that those professions are really critical. And, it enables the government to pay for their ongoing training and certification and credentialing. And, and I'm talking about our acquisition workforce. I'm talking about our, our financial managers. And, and, you know, there are certainly a, a cadre of a bunch of other professions. But, but the, the levers that in industry are the key levers for driving behavioral and organizational change. Your leadership, your, you know, your managers and, and your human resources staff they've kind of been the the, the redheaded stepchildren in, in, in the federal government in terms of the care and feeding of those parts of the workforce.
3: Well, and I think when you look at private sector companies, right, there is a lot around talent management, around, you know, some of the tech companies have chief people officers, there's human capital data analytics, and those are things that require a different way of thinking and investment in the government. So to the extent that we, can start thinking about that because hr in my mind hr enables so much of the work that we do in government right you have to bring talent in you have to onboard it develop it you know deal with all the recruitment and retention and a lot of that ties in some way to the human capital function and so i've always said you know you can look at organizational performance and measure it but if you don't have people in the building you're not going to have any organization to perform so it's all about the people there and so that's that's really where i think focusing on that piece of of supporting HR and making sure that HR has the tools to do the work. I mean, even the hiring and assessments, we were just talking about a lot of that work rests with the human capital function again. And so how do we really start focusing on those, what I would call mission enabling, not just mission support, but they really are mission enabling functions that help move the work of the agency forward?
0: You know, clearly all three of us have had conversation before, so it's always fun for me to hear things that I've thought coming out of each of your mouths. The way I tend to put it is when there's the zombie apocalypse, nobody's going to care about your IT or your office furniture. They're going to care about who are the people, how well they trade, who's next to you to survive. And you're right. Our human capital specialists have been put down for way too many decades. They don't receive the same level of respect of the other CXO types positions, but the reality is without quality HR professionals, nothing else is going to work. And it's frustrating how much this has continued and where the focus is going to go. A story I kind of like to tell is the way I actually wound up at OMB was when I was interviewing my very first round interview, I made a comment that there is not a single HR specialist in the entire federal government that can know every single HR law, regulation, policy, and if somebody tells you they do, that person is lying. We have built a system with 5,000 laws, regulations, And we expect HR people to know all these cumbersome, fairly extraneous, a lot of them contradictory, old rules that are all about the extreme cases, instead of having HR people actually perform the roles of consulting to managers, being able to work with applicants, think about the future of work. Anything we've done to supposedly modernize and take away the transactional work has actually made things far worse with most of the automated systems just becoming more cumbersome, clunky, and taking away a lot of the ability to work. So uh, I think all of us agree that this is an area that we can focus on.
2: No, thank you both so much. Jenny, you got something to add there?
3: I was just gonna say, maybe this will take us into the next part of the segment of the conversation of Part of that too is talking to leaders about enabling leaders in agencies and leaders outside of agencies of enabling this work and thinking about their sort of ensuring that they're getting developed in a way that helps them ask these questions take this approach to supporting agencies in that way
2: yeah Absolutely. I, uh, I was turned on recently to a really powerful concept that, that mirrors this notion of technical debt, which is very uh, prevalent in the IT space. And it's this notion of organizational debt. Uh, if, you, if you've if you left these human capital and these personnel policy issues to languish, uh, you're going to have a much bigger problem and a much harder time uh, changing the course of, of that big old chip uh until you deal with some of those things and it, it feels like we're very much in the middle of that that situation here and so I'm, I'm excited to come back from our next break and talk about like how do we translate some of this vision about doing things differently into reality uh, especially considering some of the the barriers and the the lessons learned that that I think you both have encountered uh in your your careers in and out of government We've got a pause here for our uh, break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Uh, we're diving back into our conversation with Rob Seidner from EdX and Jenny Mattingly from the Partnership for Public Service. Uh, and right before the break, we were we were talking about you know how do you confront this accumulated organizational debt from from ignoring or, or putting to the side some of these really hard human capital and, and and leadership issues in the government for so long, and you know maybe to to, to, to drive down into a more tactical conversation, specifically around hiring, because we are seeing some really critical and positive momentum and attention to this. Um, and Jenny, you were on the inside recently, your most recent stint in government, um, supporting some of these hiring reform efforts at, at OPM uh, and OMB. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious about the lessons you learned there in, in trying to drive some of this forward.
3: It's interesting because one of the things that I've always struggled with doing government affairs work is obviously this focus on legislation and policy. And we have these conversations is how much change or how much um, movement forward is enabled by policy and legislative changes. But to Rob's point, there are thousands of policies out there. Some are agency policies, some are regulations, some are you know legislation that's been uh, passed by Congress. And then how much of it is culture? and how do you strike that balance of actually implementing programs and changing the culture around it versus needing any sort of enabling policy for it. And so one of the things when I was working in government was piloting programs around using subject matter um, experts, assessing employees based on the skills that the job needs and then identifying who's qualified for those roles based on the assessments and based on the work of the subject matter experts. And part of that Some of it requires enabling legislation, but a lot of it requires having leaders who are willing to try something different and to allow that space to innovate, allow the space to take a risk and try something in a new way that is still within the bounds of being legal, of upholding the merit principles. And then how do you help train employees in doing something new? And a lot of that is just that work that we were talking about is, actually providing training for folks, actually convening conversations across government, getting the right folks at the table to think through a problem and be able to do it and then provide them the space to implement, iterate, take lessons learned and tweak if needed, right? Just because, and and I think sometimes when we look to legislation to make those changes, it forces everybody down one path and maybe boxes them in in a way that it wasn't intended to. And so part of this is how do you start? It goes back to, I think leaders that really want to enable different types of thinking, who want to do the risk taking. I was just looking at uh, some of the leadership competencies that we talked about here at Partnership, and some of those are embracing risk and uncertainty, adaptability, innovation, and creativity. Right, those are the things you have to enable both at the top, but all the way through your workforce, in order to try hiring a different way, to try, you know, any number of things across agencies a different way, and then it just takes a lot of work to build trust, to build Uh, awareness and to build buy-in? To me,
0: I take a little bit of an opposite approach after being involved with so many issues. I love the concept of bureaucracy hacking. I hate the concept that we have to hack the bureaucracy in order to take the risk, in order to be able to do the types of changes that Jenny is talking about, the training, the teaching in different ways of doing things to get around what are frankly arbitrary and archaic rules throughout all of the different processes. Now I'm not just talking human capital, I'm talking about procurement, I'm talking about facilities, that we developed processes in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s that have stayed on the book and any change we make is always trying to keep things tied to the past. So, many of the innovations and things that we are forced to do shouldn't have to be done. So, when you look at even the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978, it was incredibly forward-looking. It included uh, ideas like demonstration projects where agencies would be allowed to be flexible. OPM was given incredible authority over pay-setting classification, qualifications, all the foundational ideas of a merit-based civil service, OPM has the authority to be evolving, but we've added so much process to it, we have chosen not to keep up with it, that we are often stuck trying to figure out how do you work around it. I'm sorry, it's like, I don't agree that we should have any classifications that have been around since the Kennedy administration. I do not believe that we should be following the uniform guidelines of 1978 in 2023. When you look at the general schedule, in itself, there's nothing wrong with the general schedule. There is nothing wrong with the classification system. The problem is when we are trying to fit today's multidisciplinary jobs into a box that was created 50 years ago, And everything that we're doing, it is trying to figure out how do we get things tied to the box so we don't wind up in an HR jail. That is problematic. So that's where I see legislation and policy changes just clearing away and making sure that there is the freedom to do so. And that includes, frankly, empowering the chief human capital officers. In most businesses, the chief people officer or their equivalent is in innermost circle C-suite executive who has the authority to make the changes in the organization. Chico's are still the only CXO position that need to go to another agency to ask for permission before they can say yes to a larger hiring uh, bonus, retention, all like dozens of other items. So they don't have the authority to make those changes. All of that's in policy and legislation that if we kind of go to let's clear everything out and let agencies experiment as Congress already said they should be doing in 1978, a lot of these downstream problems would resolve themselves.
3: And I think that is a, I mean, I will say there's an interesting point there about clearing out things, whether it's burden reduction, whether it's just simplification, whether it's just taking away, because we've got layers of, legislation that congress has passed the law there then you've got regulations passed by opm by agencies and then you've got on top of that agency policies and practice and so don't forget
2: collective bargaining agreements
3: and collective bargaining agreements so when you think about all these different layers of process right where can you where can you clear those out because you're right rob until until it's easier for people to innovate or to think about things differently or just frankly do their jobs all these different layers need to be looked at. And so, and that's where I go back to, right? How much is culture, how much is policy, and how much is kind of just taking a holistic look at all of it. So I think there's work in each of those spaces, but simplifying would be probably a good step as well
2: yeah i always feel like in washington dc you know policy making is the varsity sport and like you know implementing those policies like maybe you're the flag twirlers or like somebody who's like perhaps somewhere on the field but definitely not even jv and i think that that's in part uh made all the harder because of these multitude of accreted laws and rules over time which as rob mentioned like sometimes kind of don't go together with one another and that makes it really hard because you know i think about that the snake eating its own tail you know where does the culture begin and where does the culture end does it start and be with all of these laws and people don't want to go to hr jail or they don't want to get in trouble because they violated someone's rights but like they might not even know that they did because the system is so complicated uh and i i think that that Manifests itself in some of the frustration that the public have, you know, with with how the government's operating, and some of the the diminished levels of trust that we see in the federal government. That I know that uh, the partnership has been doing some really uh, powerful work trying to to put some more data out there around what that looks like and and how we can try to rebuild that trust because it's so critical.
3: Yeah, and I'll come back to the trust piece, but I did want to say one of the things we saw when we were running these. MECWA pilots, as we were calling them, Subject Matter Experts Qualifications Assessments, really long, odd acronym, but but, uh, one of the things we saw, though, and going to your point about culture and policy is that we were able to work through things. I do want to make the point that even though some of these things are tough when you bring people to the table in a different way, what I've found is that a lot of times conversations weren't happening. They weren't happening across the policy folks, the legal folks, the HR folks, the executives, whomever needed to be at the table. And so, yes, I think there are structural changes that, and that's an opportunity for Congress, for others to look at, but some of it too is bringing people together to talk and to think through problems. And that doesn't happen because people are so busy in the tyranny of the now, right, working on their jobs, delivering on mission. And as we said, that's where a lot of the priority and focus, rightfully so, goes. But when you bring the enabling folks together and give them the opportunity to talk and work through a problem, it takes a while and you've got to figure out best ways to approach it. But you can actually make some change. And I saw agencies make change. And once they started, I've talked to a couple agencies who once it was hard to get Smequa up and running. It's a difficult process to do multiple hurdle assessments, bring in subject matter experts, you know, it takes a lot of people's time to do that, even though it increases the outcome and increases applicant satisfaction and hiring manager satisfaction. But once they figured out how to do it and did the hard work up front, they're now doing it over and over again and have changed the way they hire. And so so yes, I think there's a lot of work to enable that, but some of it is really bringing people together and giving them time to figure it out. And it takes a while. It's not easily scalable at first, but once you can get it going, it does. there are changes that happen in the government. And so I want to balance, like, yes, change is needed, but there are people really trying to do things in a different way.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, all of us are thinking about how do we help those people go faster where they can, we can remove roadblocks for them that may exist out there. And I do think that this notion you bring up of like bringing people together and giving them the space to do something differently. You know, I, I, think about my experience representing these various federal employee professional groups, and and you look at the difference in treatment that particularly the manager associations receive from agencies and the administrations versus groups like the Association of Government Accountants or the National Contract Managers Association, where no one blinks an eye, where they're getting together to go to a training and talking with their colleagues in government and industry about how do you do this and how do you solve that problem? We, We don't have Uh, particularly for our our human resources workforce, that same kind of place where they can come together to talk about best practices and and how to change some of these things. The Chico Council doesn't seem to be offering that venue um, either. And then Rob, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that.
0: The way I've been describing it, it's the water is polluted and toxic, yet we're blaming the fish for not being edible. And there is a lot here that, yes, if the School of Fish came together, we can do a whole lot together. But first, we need to purify the water, get the system back to a place where people can do things. And you're right. The Chico Council right now, I am a big supporter of, of, you know, it was created, you know, in the Homeland Security Act. So it's more than 20 years old. It's time to look at that and kind of let the Chico's start taking more control of the HR workforce. There are lots of places to be able to start convening them and have them start working through the process. I started in um, at OPM about 20 years ago, and I was really lucky that I came in at the tail end of the old way of doing HR. So I was able to learn from people who had been doing HR since the 1960s, 70s. Worked at a lot of agencies when HR and all the other mission support functions were co-located at each place. So I get there's something to be said about saving money with centralization. I get there's a lot that came from that. But the thing was, the HR, the GSA equivalents, they knew their market. They knew their managers. They knew their employees. They knew pretty much what was going on. And they really learned the mission of their agencies. They were able to advise the managers on what they needed to get done. So instead, we have now switched it to we expect managers to be experts in all of the mission support fields as we don't let the mission support people get together to actually have the power to do their work. So it really, you know, I like your example of a snake eating its tail, but all of this becomes a process issue where when we don't have mission support people being able to work together and not under the crushing weight of the Office of Personnel Management regulations. But can we go back to like the merit system principles fit on a business card? Like, let's stick to what are the ideals here and not have everything is legal unless it's written and focus on the job is getting the best civil servants to fulfill the mission of this government. Um, OPM's old mission statement used to be working for America, and I loved it because I thought that did a great job of describing what HR's role should be. And we kind of need to go back to that. Um, It shouldn't be up to the Department of Interior and Agriculture to come up with a way to pay our wildland firefighters without requiring an executive order from the president. We knew these firefighters were making GS3 salaries and less than the local minimum wage, where not to be crass about this, but the prison labor force that was putting out fires were being taken care of better than we were taking care of our federal wildland firefighters. That was something that could have been solved long ago using authorities by being able to start thinking what do we need to do to have the workforce be effective, as opposed to how do we make everything fit into what was written during, you know, when Truman was president?
1: <laughs>
2: we, you know, as as my friend Philip Howard uh, writes in his book, you know, maybe we should try common sense. Um, <laughs> uh, we've got a we've got a pause here for our uh, uh, some words from our sponsors and our our final break, and we return. We'll wrap up our discussion here on Fed Talk. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering our last segment of the show with Jenny Mattingly from the Partnership for Public Service and Rob Seidner from EdX. And and in our last segment, I want to kind of focus in on a couple things that that I think all of us are really interested and passionate about trying to move forward here. Um, and maybe Rob, I'll start with you, and then I'll go to Jenny and. There's this notion in the government that we want to have a skills-based workforce. This is also a a pretty prevalent idea in our society now, where we're moving away from a focus on educational attainment. You know, did you go to college and all this stuff? And really, at the end of the day, what can you do? How do you prove it? And then how do we make you be successful? And so I'm just curious about, you know, what is the opportunity there? And what are some things that we might need to change to make that a reality? So
0: this actually even ties back to your first question about divided government. Um, the only executive order on the civil service that the Biden administration kept was the Trump executive order on moving towards skills-based hiring. The Biden administration kept it and expanded it. The part that has been missing is in order for skills-based hiring to work, we actually still need to adjust our classification and qualification standards. So right now, To just qualify for federal employment, you either need a degree or a year of certain education or a year of experience. So if you have someone who may have worked the last 20 years as a cashier, but has taken quality boot camps or certifications from places like edX, from the tech companies, and can show that they can do the work they will still not qualify for a competitive service job because they don't have either X numbers of years at the next lower level or education qualifications. So as much as we want to talk about skills based hiring, until we go more at the root, we're not going to be able to do that. Even when it comes to college degrees, um, well, there are about 400 plus Um, job classifications, about a hundred of them have positive education requirements. There's still many places that within the private sector, they're starting to look to say, does this position really need a degree? And there'll be a difference between an MD and possibly like an accountant. So it is time that we really start looking and seeing how do we start implementing this? A lot of the degree requirements became pretty prevalent as an easy screen out. And that's the same thing in the private sector, that when you have a lot of people applying, asking if they have a degree is a way to screen in, screen out. But what we also know, especially from a diversity standpoint, only about a quarter of our country has a bachelor's degree. And when you're looking at certain populations, the number is even lower. So the more we continue to say, you need a degree, any degree. So for the government, you can have a bachelor's of fine arts and qualify for a GS5 as a mortuary, mortuary scientist. That, that's a problem that we really need to be looking at. The rest of the future of work, the, the entire economy from the largest tech companies to today, Bain um, put out uh, saying how much more productive the employees are when they're looking at those from different backgrounds. Until we actually work on those changes, it's gonna be a lot of rhetoric coming from us. And we're gonna miss out on a ton of the great talent that exists in rural parts of the country, from urban where they may not have had a great uh, high school education. So with skills-based, when we're really focusing on continual education, training on new things as they come out, constantly investing in the shorter term course or two at a time, instead of pretending that there's some magic behind four years and 120 credits and a campus-based experience, then we can really start moving the needle on so many of the other efforts that benefit all sides of the issue, which I should say is a big reason, chance to compete past the house with the numbers it, it had. This is an issue in every single district about access to education, access to training. And as more and more jobs become virtual, go into different places, companies like Amazon and Google, Netflix, they're not caring where you came from. They just want to know, can you do the job today? If so, yes, we want to hire you the federal government is not there yet.
3: Well, and I think part of that, Rob, is figuring out what skills the government needs. I'm just looking at a report that the partnership put out about agencies capitalizing on cloud technology. And we've talked about it a lot with uh, all the digital facing and IT processes we need in government. You need to know what skills to, to go to the cloud, to go to digital experience, all these different things that we say people want, um the American public wants and that agencies want you have to know what type of skills where do people get those are they boot camps are they certification and to get to those skills then you have to have a human capital function that knows how to work across the agency to identify those skills to even do some foresighting around what skills might we need in five years so if we're hiring now you know and then figuring out where they go to find those skills and recruit I think that's another function that agencies don't necessarily have in as robust a capacity as in the private sector, is this recruitment function of how to say, we know we need cloud architects or something. The (laughs) the cloud piece is not my forte in terms of what type of the skill sets are. But how do you go find those? How do you then recruit them? And then how do you assess to make sure, Jason, like you said, that they can do the job and know that they can walk in doing the job? And so part of that, to me, goes back to that original conversation we had of, can you bring in a you know, really robust human capital function that knows data analytics, that knows recruiting, that's certified can, and has continuous learning then the same way that we do for the acquisition workforce and both on those soft leadership skills all the way up the chain, but also on the technical skills. And people go get MBAs. There's, you know I'm sure there are HR certifications out there too that help people keep up on these skills in that profession. And so, so it's a little bit of, Taking that about the education piece and thinking about it from the HR perspective of the, where do they go to get those skills, how do we set up the infrastructure to make sure those skills are maintained, and then leverage it towards finding these other skills.
2: Absolutely, and you know, you you both talked about. Um, oh, I lost it. Uh, I'll start that over. Um, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is that you see certain functions and agencies kind of stepping into this void. You know, and Jenny, your example on the cloud folks, like I see a lot of IT shops standing up people operations. And and I'm guessing that's because they're not getting the the help that they need or they have a ton of money because Congress is throwing Buku money at cyber and IT and they're not thinking about the mission support enabling functions that they need to give money to more broadly in the agency. And and I think that that's one of those kind of challenge opportunity areas. And, Jenny, you're commenting about, like, you need to get people together around the agency. And you got to get the right people in the room. And it's going to be a cross-functional, you know, multidisciplinary team. Uh, agencies need to be doing more of that as opposed to duplicating functions um, across their organization where it's convenient. That, that, that doesn't seem very efficient to me.
1: Well,
3: and that's where Congress has played a role in, say, the acquisition workforce in the past. There has been enabling legislation around the Federal Acquisition Institute around creating that infrastructure to help make sure that the acquisition workforce has the tools it needs to do this. And so there's certainly a function in that space to think about where might Congress come together to have those conversations on how they create the infrastructure to enable exactly those sorts of teams.
0: Exactly. And those are, you know, obviously I'm focusing a lot on human capital since that's my background, but you can look and say that there's somebody at OMB, the incredible Joni Newhart, that everyone knows who is responsible for that workforce. In the IT world, you have FITARA, like you have something that's out there to be able to work towards. We don't have those in the human capital space, despite having an entire agency for central personnel, there isn't one person who is actually is responsible for the HR specialists. We certainly do not wall off training for most mission support positions. That um, DOD came out with its study last year from the Defense Business Board that showed like the civil servants in the Navy get about $300 per civil servant versus more than $8,000 per sailor. That's kind of crazy when you look at how little is being invested in all these functions, that Congress wants accountability, and we all want accountability. Nobody wants to see money being wasted. Nobody wants to see poor performers. Nobody is looking for a negative experience from government. But until we start having things like training Walled off. Instead of it all being spent, you know, September 28th with the last two days of the fiscal year, it's not going to happen.
2: Yep, we've we've got some things to change. Uh, We're we're almost at the end of our time here together. Um, I've really appreciated having my friends Jenny Mattingly from the Partnership for Public Service and Rob Seidner from EdX Uh, join us here on Fed Talk. Uh, I want to give you each one quick last uh, lightning question. You've been at this a long time. What keeps you going, Jenny?
3: Honestly, the people I've met inside government who do some pretty amazing work. And so I've been privileged to see what they can do for the American public and that's what keeps me going to help support them.
2: Thanks so much, Jenny, and thanks again for for being here on Fed Talk. Rob, what's keeping you going in this? I completely agree. It's, uh, you know, going
0: for what Teddy Roosevelt, the founder of pretty much the Civil Service Commission, that it's good work, you know, worth doing is just a complete focus. And for someone like me who has met easily probably 10,000 civil servants in the last 20 years, almost every single person I've met is passionate towards trying to help this country. And public service motivation is a real thing. Um, combined with if we stop doing it, the country fails. And that's really not a pretty picture either.
2: No, no, it's not. Uh, I'm so glad to, to know you both, and to know that that there are folks like you and many others in this really important fight. Uh, and that's all the time we've got here on Fed Talk today. Uh, Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Uh, thanks again to Jenny and Rob, and we hope everyone has a great rest of the day.